KCIUT 89.5 FM, celebrating 35 years as the sound of your city. Proudly student and listener-supported community radio. The views and opinions expressed on the following program are those of the producers and or the persons appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of CIUT-FM. Welcome to the Radical Reverend Show, and we're going to start off with a bang today. Uh, We're going to start off speaking to this amazing woman. I'm just going to say it out loud. The subject is, for this next hour, housing, because that is probably the number one concern of everyone who lives in the GTA uh, HA, and not only here, but as you know, CIUT, thank you for being, broadcast from Buffalo to Barrie and Kitchener to Coburg. So there isn't a municipality or a place that's not really concerned about the cost of living, primarily housing. So to talk about that with me is the housing critic for the official opposition, MPP Jessica Bell. Jess, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Sherry, thanks for having me here. Oh, it's so much fun. So I remember you back in the day. You were, I mean, you were a transit advocate and you still stopped. But now you're the housing critic. There seems to be a, somewhat of a similarity between those two portfolios. But talk to me about housing. Uh, what are you hearing? What's happening? Yeah. Housing is shaping up to be the biggest election issue uh, in this upcoming provincial election. When I go door to door, I hear from mainly young people who cannot afford to pay rent anymore and they're giving up. They want to move out of the city. They don't know where they're going to go. Their incomes are not rising, but but their their rent just is just getting more and more prohibitive. That's a huge issue. And the other issue that's uh, particularly prevalent in Toronto is the homelessness crisis. And that is due to a failure of leadership at all three levels of government. It, a province as rich as ours, no one, no one at all should be ever sleeping in a park. People should live in supportive housing and be provided with the support they need to get back on their feet and rebuild their lives. They're the two big issues that we're seeing in Toronto today. Uh, speaking to Jess Bell here on housing. And by the way, in the second part of the show, I'm going to be speaking to the Interfaith Coalition on homelessness. So uh, some other views on the issue. I always tell the story because I was a kid that lived on the streets and managed to get off the streets in my teen years be- uh, because of what they then call student welfare. But student welfare back in the day, and I know like I'm as old as dirt, but still back in the day would pay for a basement apartment, which I had, and, and food, uh, no one on social assistance, not even on ODSP can afford that in anywhere near Toronto anymore. And I always tell the story too, that that was under conservative governments, municipally, provincially, and federally. The difference was, I think, I mean, I'm gonna get your take on this, in part, taxation issues. The wealthy were paying higher taxes. Governments had more money to spend and uh, so they could be browbeaten in the case of the Tories into spending some of it on housing. You know, what's going on now that we can't, that we're basically forcing people with disabilities to be homeless, where every, it's impossible to live on OW, you know, that's impossible. So we have people dying on our streets. What changed? 
Uh, Sharon, <clears throat> that's a, a really good question. Uh, there, um, I mean, there's a few pieces there. I can talk about what this uh, Ontario government has done on housing and what they've failed to do. This government uh, has decided to cut funding to supportive housing, affordable housing programs and municipalities. That's what they've done every year they've been in office. Even though the need for supportive housing uh, and for measures to address homelessness has been going through the roof. There are more than 40% um, of uh, renters in Ontario today who pay unaffordable rent, which means they're paying too much of their income or their social assistance on rent. And the challenge is that means we're not building the kind of supportive housing uh, that we truly need uh, to get these people back on their feet. I'll give you one example. Uh, there was a building at 877 Young. It's right near the Toronto Reference Library. It used to be uh, a retirement home and then it got converted into supportive housing units. They just straight up bought a building. The thing is, is that the, pro the provincial government uh, in particular just was nowhere at the table. They didn't contribute any money to that program at all. It was just the federal government and the city, um, and the city government that contributed funding to that. That kind of idea of finding supportive housing for folks uh, and getting them housed is something that we should be replicating all across the GTA and beyond, and it's simply not happening. You know, I remember um, being a housing critic uh, under a liberal government at that time, and I remember we did research, I'm sure it hasn't changed much, about how much it costs to keep somebody in a shelter because it's not cheap. And I remember asking the then uh, housing minister, who was, you know, he's a nice kind of liberal guy, uh, John Gerritsen, I remember asking him, I said, well, it cost, and I, I think the number was back then over $100 a night, essentially, to keep somebody. And that's not even counting the costs of, you know, going to the hospital more frequently, uh, getting involved with the you know, justice system more frequently, et cetera. This is just straight up uh, bookkeeper costs for keeping them in a shelter. And I said, you know, you could probably rent a hotel room for that. This makes absolutely no sense. This is way more expensive than actually anting up and providing even new build housing for people. And he, his answer was, yeah, I know it's, it's strange, isn't it? That was his answer. I remember it so clearly, I, we couldn't, you know, what, what can you do with that? That was a liberal government. Now we've got a conservative government who'd probably say, because we don't care, I mean, in couch terms, but um, still the same kind of answer. Nobody wants to put the money in up front. Nobody. Um, why is that? Is it polling? You know, we, politicians and governments love polling. Does it poll badly? I can't imagine that it does. It must be a top of mind issue for most people, housing. Sherry, this is such an excellent question. When I go door to door, it doesn't matter what the income level is of the person that I'm talking to. Everyone understands that it's better to house someone than to have them sleeping on the street. No question. It needs to happen. The government just released a provincially backed housing affordability task force uh, to look at ways to make housing more affordable for Ontarians because they acknowledge that it's a crisis. The challenge is that all their recommendations uh, focus on building new supply. And when they're talking about building new supply, they're talking about building those 600 square foot condos in downtown Toronto, which people with a family cannot live in, or they're talking about building multi-million dollar homes uh, in farmland, on, on farmland, which is extraordinarily expensive and environmentally destructive. But what the provincial government is absolutely failing to do is put any money into building new affordable housing projects. In fact, they told this task force 
that building new affordable housing was absolutely off the table and that they were um, told not to come up with any recommendations on that front, which is shocking. And the other um, thing that has happened recently, which I think is really telling about this government's failure to address this issue, is that the city of Toronto uh, has been calling for modular homes to be built uh, across the GTA, GTHA. So these are these really quick, cheap homes that you can build on parking lots in order to get people housed really fast. And a lot of downtown ridings have um, approved uh, these housing developments. They've been built in the beaches. Some of them have been built in my riding, but where they haven't been built is in conservative ridings. There is a, um, a request right now from the city of Toronto for the 59 modular homes, these cheap supportive housing homes to be built in uh, Stan Cho's riding in Willowdale. And he straight up refused them. So that really does go to show that this government likes to talk a good talk about affordability, but when it actually comes to housing people in need, they are nowhere at the table. Let's talk about rent as well, because as we all know, we do not have real rent control in this province and we have not had for decades. Uh, so real rent control means that even if you're built in a building earlier than when the laws change, you, if you move out, the landlord can jack up the rent to whatever they want. Real rent control means the rent control stays with the unit. Any movement on that anywhere, Jess? I'm talking to Jessica Bell, by the way, MPP for uh, University of Rosedale and housing critic for the official opposition. Go for it. Uh, renters in Ontario are experiencing the worst impacts of the housing affordability crisis. And every year there are more and more renters uh, living in Ontario. So in Toronto, for example, 50% of our city now rents and across Ontario, it's up to 35% of people who now rent. These people are paying way too much to live in apartments uh, and homes that are often too small and that are not properly maintained. One way to give renters better protections so they can live in safe and affordable homes and are protected from the ever-present fear of an illegal eviction is to bring in uh, what's called real rent control. And it's exactly like what you say, Sherry. Uh, it would be to put a cap on the amount of uh, money uh, that the landlord can increase the rent when a former tenant moves out. We have um, real rent control uh, in our housing election platform because straight up rents are too expensive and they need to be stabilized. Uh, this government uh, is no friend to renters. Uh, they uh, have shown no interest uh, in stabilizing rents uh, for uh, renters. In fact, they've made it easier for renters to be evicted and they've eliminated rent control on new buildings. It's It just makes things more expensive for people and it's leading to teachers, baristas, delivery workers, students uh, paying way too much and giving up and moving out of our city. It's just wrong. There's, uh, there's always been this kind of urge to home ownership. And again, to, to, if you look back in the 50s and 60s, on one salary, uh, sort of middle-class family, there was such a thing back then, um, middle-class family could have own a home, expect to own it outright at some point, and a car, and a few lucky ones could have a cottage as well. Now, only the wealthy wealthy can own a cottage and a home. And chances are, even if you're lucky enough to own a home, you'll never pay it off, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. And it takes two salaries, at least two salaries, to be able to do that. Uh, 
you know, so so with house prices around the million dollar mark as a kind of base in Toronto, this dream of home home ownership is just a dream for most people. What I mean, is it something we should still dream about, or what what's to be done there? I I think that dream of home ownership should be a reality for a far greater number of Ontarians. Uh, when people own their own home or apartment or townhouse or duplex, means that they're more able to settle, uh, put down roots, uh, know that their kid isn't going to have to be forced to leave and go to another school because they've been evicted. There are so many advantages to home ownership. In order for home ownership to be more available uh, to more people, just like it used to be, just like it used to be for previous generations, there are measures that we should take. Uh, one, uh, an NDP government will move forward with building more affordable housing that uh, meets the needs of Ontarians. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, this government uh, loves to just hand over the reins of building to the private sector and let them do what they will. And that means they're building these 600 square foot condos and these multi-million dollar homes, which either don't work for folks or they're just too expensive. There is uh, a huge amount of benefit in uh, taking a more uh, measured uh, government-led approach to housing, which means uh, investing in uh, the construction of uh, more affordable homes on public land. It means giving uh, attractive financing options to nonprofit developers like options from ho for homes and Habitat for Humanity, as well as co-ops. So we can build those more affordable homes, those two, three bedroom homes uh, that are non-market, that are cheaper. And this is not a pie in the sky reality. This is something that happened uh, in Ontario in the 70s, where we built more homes, more affordable homes than we have ever done since. And these are measures that are being applied in some jurisdictions in BC right now. The example I like to give is what's happening in Burnaby. Burnaby is building more affordable rental and more non-market housing than any other jurisdiction across the B across BC, because the government is taking a more active role uh, in financing and supporting that kind of development. That's what we should be doing here, because an average income earner, uh, lower income earner, there's no way they're going to be able to afford a million dollar home or two million dollar home, and that's that is what the private market market is doing, and it's not for a lot of folks. So that's why government should step in. Uh, speaking to Jessica Bell here, MPP for University of Rosedale, and also the housing critic for the official opposition at Queen's Park. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, not not even lawyers and doctors can afford if they're young and coming up, you know, even if they're earning phenomenal salaries. I mean, if you have to raise a quarter of a million dollars just for a down payment, <laughs> you're not going to be owning a home anytime soon. Uh, so that's crazy. You mentioned options for home. Homes, um, one in my neighborhood, great success, lovely place to live. And I remember asking David Crombie, um, conservative mayor, about the 70s and about the St. Lawrence market redevelopment, which is still kind of the gold standard for, for that. You've got supportive housing, you've got co-ops, you've got market all mixed together. It's a nice place to live. And he said it all started with a co-op. He started making co-ops more easy to finance and to get going is the beginning of it. Uh, this is partly the federal government is a federal government issue in in part to get the financing going. But, but I mean, any any signs of the federal government on anything to make co-op housing easier? 
It's excellent that you're bringing up that example. Um, the federal government has a program that's run by the CMHC to provide really generous financing for developers that are interested in building affordable housing. We're talking 30, 50 year loans that don't need to be paid back until renters move in. It's, it's, it's quite attractive. The challenge is that uh, the standard uh, is very low. So developers um, can build a, a new development and basically uh, charge rent that is above the average rent in that area and they're still able to access that program. These homes are not affordable. And what's even worse is that nonprofit developers, uh, co-ops, uh, non-market housing providers can't access this financing program because it's too difficult to jump through all the hoops that they need to jump through to get access to this funding and start putting shovels in the ground. There is a role the Ontario government should play to guarantee financing and help nonprofit developers access this federal funding and financing program so that we can build non-market housing and more affordable housing across Ontario. It would it would help so many people. Yeah, I just I met just, someone, sorry. No, I was just gonna say, and there's so much, but go on, continue. I, I literally just met someone uh, yesterday, uh, a, a single mother, she lived in her parents' basement and she had uh, just bought an options for home home and options for homes uh, essentially um, helps uh, this person get access to a down payment so that they can move into a home and pay a monthly a monthly amount which is equivalent to their rent but at, at the end of the time they they own the condo she was so excited that she and her 17 year old daughter were going to move into this condo on eglinton avenue and it's because of these kind of programs that allow people who've given up on owning a home to you know get that get that stable home and raise their family it was she felt like she'd won the lottery and that feeling should be available to thousands and thousands and thousands of more ontarians uh, this has been a pleasure, Jess. Uh, we just have a few minutes left. So just to wrap up, we're looking at an election coming up very shortly. It doesn't seem to be getting a lot of news, what with a war and a pandemic and other things happening in our in our town. But I, you know, you mentioned housing is going to be a top of mind issue. What do you see happening uh, around this? I mean, do you think this is going to be an issue that's going to change people's minds? those who maybe voted conservative the last time. I don't know. Like, what do you think? Here's, let's yeah. be optimistic. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. This is housing and climate change, uh, especially for young people, are the two defining issues of our generation. It will be an election issue. Uh, our plan is to stabilize housing prices and make sure that everyone can have an, a, a safe and affordable home. That will be achieved by bringing in better protections for renters, clamping down on the rampant speculation that is taking place in our housing market, building more affordable homes for folks that are in need, uh, and, and building more homes that the everyday Ontarian needs, those two and three bedroom homes uh, that allow people to raise a family. That's our plan. And uh, I really hope that we get to form government so that we can make it happen. Thank you so much and good luck. Uh, Thank you, Sherry. Again to uh, MPP Jessica Bell, University of Rosedale and housing critic in the official opposition. Stay tuned. Uh, more on housing coming up. Proudly student and listener supported community radio. CIUT 89.5 FM, celebrating 35 years as the sound of your city.
Welcome back to the Radical Reverend Show. Delightful to have you here. And just a note to all the listeners out there, we love to hear from you on this show. So any comments, questions, anything at all, always answer. Uh, give us a shout. Let us know uh, what you think. And you can uh, reach me, Sherry DeNovo, your host. I'm all on social media like everybody else in this world. Uh, that's the easiest place to, to find me. And I'm delighted on the second part of the show to have two terrific guests. Uh, we've got Cameron Watts. He's Reverend Cameron Rotz, Minister at Forest Grove United Church. And we also have, uh, and oh, by the way, I'm the co-chair of Faith in the City. And we also have Rafi Aaron, who is a spokesperson for inter the Interfaith Coalition to Fight Homelessness, and also the coordinator for the Out of the Cold program at St. Luke's United. Welcome to the Radical Reverend Show, both of you. Great to be here. Thank you, Sherry. So let's jump right in. And the issue that I really want to focus on with the two of you is homelessness. You know, I grew up in this town, and I said this in the first half of the show, I, I was on what they call student welfare as a teenager, uh, living on the street, living rough, and managed to get a basement apartment and feed myself and go back to school on welfare, what was called welfare back then. Uh, impossible now. You could be on Ontario Disability and still not be able to afford to rent anything. So if people out there wonder why we're stepping over people sleeping on our grates, that's why. Um, expand. Rafi, I'm going to start with you. Homelessness in this city. Um, we have reached unprecedented uh, levels of homelessness. Uh, we are seeing suffering and death, the likes of which we have never seen before. I've been volunteering in the sector for 14 years, and um, it's just uh, almost beyond imaginable uh, what we are seeing from years of ne government neglect. Um, we know that there are officially that there are 3.6 homeless deaths a week in the city of Toronto. But it's actually much higher than that, and I can go into that later. But from the city statistics, there were also 132 deaths in Toronto's shelter system. These were places when the encampments were, people were forcibly evicted. Uh, we were told by Mayor Tory, his spokespeople, councillors and staff that these were safe, quote, safe indoor spaces. Well, they proved to be anything but that. Um, so, uh, and there have been a number of, uh, you know, homeless, the, uh, death by hypothermia or people literally freezing to death, the likes of which we haven't seen, uh, in years. So, um, it's just the gaps have become so large now. Um, it's not like it was a decade ago when you went to a meal program or a clothing um a place and uh you gave out clothing and you said geez i have helped people this isn't so bad it doesn't matter what you do now uh you are seeing things that are just so gut-wrenching that you know there is no feeling of, of feeling good about anything it's just these are all the people i'm missing um that's how large the gap is right now from what governments are doing Cameron, comments on what Rafi's just said. Oh, um, actually, I want to turn it back to Rafi just for a second. I know that you've uh, uh, not been able to offer the Out of the Cold program because of the pandemic, 
but you pivoted and started feeding people out in front of St. Luke's. Uh, and I think it's important for us to know how many meals you've been serving to people who don't have anywhere to live. So there were, there were two aspects to what we do. One is um, that we started a meal program and we did something where we also offered indoor dining because you have to remember everything was closed. So people couldn't go to a coffee shop. There was a shortage of washrooms. There were a shortage of warm places. So we offered indoor dining. We were one of the few places to have that. Um, in addition to that, we serve meals to go to people, as Sherry has said, who can't afford basically to eat and pay rent. So if you're on ODSP or Ontario Works or uh, a senior's pension, right now you cannot afford to eat and pay rent. So what we are doing is keeping those people housed. Um, the other thing that we do prior to opening our doors is that uh, we have outreach teams going to encampments. Uh, last year, we served over 9,000 hot meals in encampments. Uh, our program was supposed to be for five months, like most out of the colds, and it was supposed to serve between 300 and 350 meals a week. By the time we got to the end of April, we were serving 600 meals, both through our outreach and at the church. So there is no way that we could close our doors. So we have now become a, a full year program. And how much food shocking. have you served? Yeah, and how much food um, have you served? We've served about 25,000 meals at this point. Yeah. So, so just to go back to you, Cameron, I, I mean, yeah. you're listening to this and uh, uh, there's a couple of backdrops to this that I really want to kind of do a, a bit of a dive into. One of them is, Everyone who lives in the city sees folk who are homeless. I mean, you can't go very far without seeing somebody who's on the street and clearly underhoused or homeless. Mm -hmm. Why don't we care enough about this issue? Any thoughts? Uh, I, I think the primarily because there's so many other things distracting us. And, and it's very easy for us to say, you know, this has been so hard. I need to look after myself. And, and you stop noticing uh, the people that you might have noticed before. Uh, if, you're, if you're being kept in a certain place because you want to stay safe yourself, you're not walking the streets and you're not seeing people. And, uh, and I, I get that, but they, they haven't vanished. They're still there. And, and we, um, we also have a really good way of... Um, uh, of of dismissing people by using a term like homelessness, and and it's still a good term, but the frontline workers uh, are starting to use uh, more the language of unhoused people. It's a little more awkward to put that into a sentence, but these are people who make homes wherever they can. They make a home in in a park. They make a home in an underpass. They make a home somewhere. So they're not as homeless as as uh, we would say, those of us who have a place that we can turn a key in a lock and go in and, and feel secure when we get in the front door or the or our condo door or whatever. But they're, um, they, they've made do. And, and when you use a term like homelessness, it, it just sort of becomes uh, uh, something that wraps around them and you say, okay, so these are the homeless people. 
just like anybody else who is marginalized. And as soon as you label them, um, it, it, you kind of assume that they're there forever and we will always have them to work with. Uh, I, I want to ask you both too about the, the, the sort of morality that undergirds this systemic poverty that we have now come to live with in, in our province and certainly in our city. This systemic poverty uh, is justified by, uh, in some way, sometimes consciously or unconsciously, by morality system that says, well, you know, if only they got a job, well, if only they dealt with their addiction issue, well, if only they blah, blah, fill in the blanks here. Uh, you're, you're both involved in faith communities. When you see this, I mean, what, what is the response? Who, who is the person you're seeing in encampments and who is the person that, that's eating your meals, Rafi? Maybe we'll start with you, Rafi. The one thing that I've come to know over the years is that this can happen to any of us. It can happen to any of our siblings, our children. Um, none of us are immune from this. And it's all a matter of circumstance and often luck as well. Mm -hmm. I've seen a former professor. Um, you've seen people who uh, basically there was one person, his medication, he had a wonderful job, a uh, house, two cars. His, he needed uh, certain medications that weren't covered by OHIP that were extremely expensive. Um, he became bankrupt and he was on the street. I mean, there's just one thing uh, after another. Um, and, you know, there's also women fleeing violence um, and, and, there's just so many gut-wrenching stories that, so we see everybody, they're coming from all walks of life. Um, one of the things uh, that, and I'm not surprised there are people who are working um, and they would come when we were had people sleeping over the other, they would come, you could see with briefcases or construction helmets, like they were going to work, but they couldn't afford, as you said, it the beginning um, to uh, you know to pay to pay rent right now, and um, it's just extremely uh, it's just extremely difficult. But that is the one thing that you learn that uh, it is everybody. And until someone has a family member or is in that situation themselves, they the light will, goes on. You know. And Cameron, uh, we were speaking before we started taping about the cost, the literal dollars and cents cost of keeping somebody homeless because one of the, and I'll just say excuses that politicians or governments tend to use is, well, it, it, housing is so expensive. I mean, we just don't, we don't have the budget for it. Particularly at the city level, we always hear, well, we have to balance our budget. You can't afford it. Other levels of government are, aren't stepping up. And of course, the other levels of government are saying we can't afford it either. Um, mm -hmm. You had some figures. Talk to us about what it costs to keep people on the streets, unhoused. Um, a recent study, um, and I'm sorry, I don't have the, fig uh, the study right in front of me, uh, offered that uh, it costs the city about $55,000 a year to care for someone who is unhoused. Uh, that includes emergency room visits, um, rolling ambulances, uh, police uh, interventions, um, uh, mental health concerns, all of that rolled into one. And if you have someone who is who has a home, 
uh, even if it's not much by many of our standards, it, the cost for rental and, and social supports is about $38,000 a year. So for every person we're keeping on the street, it's costing us $17,000. And I, I just don't understand why a government, particularly because um, a lot of this falls under their responsibility, the provincial government wouldn't want to save $17,000 a year per person uh, because they're always talking about how responsible they are with money. Uh, I, I want to come back to the quickly, I, I can say more about that if you want, but you were talking about morality and I, I morality is a really interesting word because I think there's a lot that's immoral about having people on the streets and it's a lack of morality that, that, that keeps them there. We know, uh, to pick up on a couple of things that Rafi said, many of these folks just don't have access to the mental health supports that they need. And there's lots of research at CAMH that says, sorry, this Center for Addiction and Mental Health, um, that says a lot, of, a lot of people just aren't getting the help that they needed. And this is long-term. The, the government started divesting responsibility for uh, people who, who were dealing with mental health issues back in the late 80s and hoped that the communities would pick it up. And many of those supports continue to be taken away. It's... Um, it's like one of those bridges you see across a chasm and you see one of those and one of the, the, the slats breaks and you have to jump a little farther to get on to the next one to make sure that you're going to get safely to the other side. This is terrible. And the, the, uh, the, the notion that there's a morality that justifies this it appalls, appalls me and many other faith leaders. Uh, speaking here to Rafi Aaron, who is uh, the spokesperson for the Interfaith Coalition to Fight Homelessness and also a coordinator of the Out of the Cold programs at St. Luke's United and also Cameron Watts, minister at Forest Grove United and co-chair of Faith in the City. You're listening to the Radical Reverend Show and we are talking about homelessness and the, the outrageous, tragic number of deaths of our homeless on the streets of our cities or unhoused, if you prefer to use that term. Uh, I remember going back to the 80s, Cameron, something you said uh, and speaking to the chaplain at what was then, um, was it Cam Age back then or was it still 99 Queen Street? Can't remember. But whatever uh, she she was saying, and that was the era of, you know, this this whole idea of, and there was some, you know, some good thought behind it of deinstitutionalizing people uh, with mental health and addiction issues. And although there was some good news about that, of course, we don't want to keep people in, in institutions, the way that they were released was, as she described it, with a prescription uh, and to death. Uh, and certainly in my area, in Parkdale, a lot of rooming houses sprang up to be there badly for folk in need. There were not the supports in the community, to your point, and this was the beginning or one of the beginnings of a huge, huge crisis. Uh, bottom line is, though, as, as you both pointed out, governments that just simply didn't want to invest the money in, in looking after people. Uh, when you speak to politicians, what are the responses you get? Kathy? Well, I think that, you know, what we're seeing is nobody... Uh, as Cameron uh, said, that nobody, uh, it is a lot cheaper uh, a, a, to put someone into housing. The real issue is that nobody wants to be the first one to make a major investment and put the shovel in the ground. That's really what's 
um, behind a lot of this. Um, the other thing that we're seeing is it's the type of housing. They say, look, we are building. I mean, there are more cranes in this city than anywhere else in North America. So there are, we are building housing, but we're not building the right type of housing. And um, what we really need is social housing in a very large way, because many of the people that I'm encountering don't have any special circumstances, addictions, or mental health. They just need housing. And what specifically we need is rent geared to income or IGI, RGI. And we need this in massive ways. And this could have been a very easy fix for Mayor Tory. What the city needed to do was to build this itself. And instead, what they have done is they've given these sweetheart deals to developers um, to build on city property uh, with very few, and I'm saying this in quotes, affordable housing, uh, even less deeply affordable housing. And in some cases, there's no rent controls and the land reverts to the developer after 20 years or something. I mean, so these are really neglected opportunities, but they will tell you they are building, you know, housing, but it's not the right type of housing. Cameron, do you want to weigh in on this? Yeah, just to pick up on that, the definition of affordable housing is at 80% of uh, market rent or market value. Uh, I was talking to somebody uh, this morning, actually, who has a friend looking for a house and they've been watching or a condo, sorry, and they've been watching the prices go up $100,000 a month for something to buy in this city. And uh, I, 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 I actually, I'm going to disagree with Rafi on one thing. We don't need shovels in the ground. We've already demonstrated that we can use a hotel, maybe not well yet. We can use buildings that are already up and underutilized. Uh, we don't need to build anything else necessarily. We need to buy some commercial properties and and put an office in, on the main floor with a, a nurse and a social worker in rotation who can work with the folks upstairs and put some, like at university, you get an RA, have somebody living on each floor who knows how to use an naloxone kit and, and knocks on the door and says, how are you doing? And gets told to you know shove off. But just knowing that somebody's checking up on you without being intrusive uh, is brilliant. I mean, some of the hotels that have been used have, have not had that and haven't proven to be particularly safe, especially for women and in other situations. Uh, uh, but or, I hear you, but it, it's the staffing that's the difference, right? That, yeah, or, or the people who are living in those uh, temporary shelters and hotels actually are being checked on regularly with and people are turning keys in their doors and walking in on them. I mean, I, I'd appreciate that. Yeah, um, I, I hear you both. I, I Ultimately, I think we, we need shovels in the ground and to turn what we've already got. What about the, the city? I mean, these are issues that have been going on forever. I fought for inclusionary zoning when I was the housing critic at uh, Queen's Park. And we finally got the Liberal government then to bring in something. It turns out it had a poison pill in it so that cities had, couldn't access it or use it particularly well. But what about inclusionary zoning? I mean, this is the idea that if you're going to, and if it was across the board with developers, if they all had to set aside even 10% of their units to be truly affordable, 
you know, we'd have, we need a definite definition there that's that's accurate. Um, you know, there would be thousands and thousands of units available overnight, just about. Why can't we get inclusionary zoning? And, uh, you know, why can't we get that? And the other issue you've raised is, is real rent control. We have in some buildings rent control, but it's it, it's only with the tenant when they leave, uh, you know, it goes up. Uh, why can't we get real rent control that's operative in a lot of American cities? And why can't we get real inclusionary zoning that also happens elsewhere? Any thoughts? Anybody? Well, I think that the reason that you can't get the inclusionary zoning is because of who's donating to the liberal and conservative parties and um those are usually developers and um you know they uh, don't want this and they have donations as you know large donations brings access and uh so i think that that is why as you said the poison pill was inserted into that uh you know inclusionary zoning um i think that it is important but it's you know, we've also got to look that there are over 100,000 people on the centralized waiting list for social housing in Toronto, plus another 10,000 who are homeless. And currently we're short 2,000 shelter beds. So it's really, we need every tool in the toolbox at this point. You need inclusionary zoning. The city has to build, um, the city has to be building uh, rent geared to income housing. We, we just need it all. But often what people like to do is say, okay, well, we've passed a law for uh, laneway suites. Um, sure, that's good, but the percentage of laneway suites will nowhere uh, be anywhere near what's needed when you've got 110,000 people waiting for housing. And most homeowners, I just have to say, as one of as one of the privileged few that actually has a house in Toronto, uh, to do you know, it's an incredible expense for the homeowner, you know, where you may or may not get. I mean, it. Yeah, absolutely. It's not a. It's not an answer, Cameron. Inclusionary zoning, building, you know, anything. I mean, for for that matter, you know, vacancy taxes. I mean, we see our main streets, particularly since the pandemic, empty empty spaces just sitting there year after year and and I, I i heard uh you know this was anecdotal but i heard someone speak to one of the owners and off the record and they said well why should i put money into it the place is as you say going up a hundred thousand a month uh just sitting there so i don't want tenants i don't want the hassle i don't want anybody in there i'm just going to use it as an investment um cameron yeah it's hard to argue with that i um I do want to say, I think there are some creative developers here in the city. Uh, there's a building going up near me and they will have more parking for bicycles than they will for vehicles. And I think that's somebody's thinking ahead and they've got an, and it's there. So I'm looking at that. I'm going, okay, so that means you've got more space for more units. You're the perfect person to put in because you don't have parking spaces, you can put in a couple more units and you can make them rent gear to income, like take that on. Um, a, a lot of them don't want to do that simply because that's a management issue and you have to hire or pay somebody to manage those units. But, but why not? Why not uh, uh, use, inst uh, sorry, uh, the other thing that happens I know a lot is that there's a, 
a section 37, I believe it's called, where people are required to give a certain amount of money when they get into a development for improvements in the area. And the councillors usually have control over how that's spent. Uh, they sometimes um, talk to the residents around the area about how they'd like that money to be spent, but like boost that by 1% and, and stick in a couple more units. Maybe it doesn't have to be in that particular building, but if you're going to build somewhere else, say your cumulative total for this area is going to be that you have to put in X number of units that are rent geared to income. And nobody has to know that they're, that they're RGI. And, and, and people who get to move into homes don't, you, who don't have them aren't usually troublemakers. They have problems, but they're not going to create problems for the other tenants. And to my knowledge, Section 37 doesn't have to be used for housing either. I mean, in, in many areas, councillors have used that for, you know, beautification projects, you know, a fountain in a park, you know, uh, things like that, uh, new steps. I mean, I, I, like, you know, it doesn't have to be used uh, for, for that. Um, in terms of RGI, we've got a great example I just mentioned in the first part of the show, and that's options for homes, you know. Uh, these are great places to live. Uh, but again, to Rafi's point, this is going to this is going to attract a certain segment of the unhoused or underhoused, but it's certainly not going to help most of the people that we're seeing that are in encampments and you know dependent on the shelter system. So uh, I mean, it, it, to me, it's shocking. It I, I what's shocking is that we're not shocked by it, uh, and that it's not the kind of election issue. And I remember being in politics and poverty, and this issue of housing, not the issue of just being able to buy a middle-class home, but this level of housing and poverty issues were always polling near the very bottom. And I wonder if it has to do to get kind of segue back to the morality and, and faith issue here, because you're both people working in those in faith uh, communities, um, whether it's just people are living in such fear, especially since the pandemic and everybody's, as you say, Rafi, we're, it could happen to any of us. We're all a few paychecks away from being in that situation, or most people are. Um, you know, how do we, As I'm gonna to speak to you now from a faith perspective, how do we lift that fear factor and get people to care? What, positively, what can we be doing to, to bring that home? I think that Torontonians uh, are more aware of homelessness and poverty in the winter months. Um, and I think what we really need to stress here is that this is not a seasonal issue. It is 365 days a year. And I remember looking at the, uh, you know, devastating statistics of homeless deaths in Toronto. And there were a few years where there were more deaths in the summer than there were in the winter, but they really slid under the radar. Um, one of the things we know is the death by hypothermia, which, by the way, I've just learned since we've been on this uh, 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 program, there has been another death, a homeless death by hypothermia uh, in the city and uh, really seems to uh, upset Torontonians. They don't want it. They understand we have a wealthy city. Um, but then something seems to happen uh, in the summer months here. And we need to find a way to really uh, explain to people that this is something that's 365 days a year. And I think with the encampments, 
um, people are starting to see that, um, that, hey, um, where are all these people coming from? You know, and I think that this, the other thing that has to happen is, uh, well, the suffering and deaths have been unprecedented. So has the public relation campaign that Mayor Tory, his staff, and city officials, unfortunately, that line has now become blurred, uh, have engaged in. So there's all these, what I would call counter arguments or statistics. Uh, one of them that we had discussed earlier was the safe indoor spaces. Uh, and it's extremely disappointing because uh, this information is resulting in the continued deaths of people who are homeless. Or building modular homes and parking lots. I've heard that being touted a lot. Cameron, how do we shift this? How do we shift this from conversations and concerns into action? Uh, I, 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 my experience of, of people in faith communities is that they tend to be very generous. And if you give them very specific requests, asks, they respond well. So earlier this year, when we asked for tents and sleeping bags, um, people responded. You know, they dug out old camping tents or they cleaned out Canadian Tire and they provided a lot. I, I think part of the, and people in faith communities who have a family member or have a neighbor or former neighbor who um, is, is living without a home right now or, or is struggling with a, a, a mental illness or both, they get it and they and they find ways to get involved. And I think quietly behind the scenes, people have been trying to do things. And, and that's why um, Rafi's program at St. Luke's has been so successful. Uh, I mean, he's not cooking all those meals himself and he's not buying all the groceries himself. And uh, the, 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 the mosques have responded and the synagogues have responded and, and the Buddhist communities and the, and the Hindu communities where they are have, have been aware of people in their neighborhoods and they've looked after them. We don't trumpet that much, but that's a lot of work. And if you're spending all of your energy on just looking after the immediate needs and it takes a lot of energy, um, then you, you end up, I don't know what else I can do or I have the time for, or I have the energy for, and, and I, I don't want to put that forward as an excuse is these people are, are sweating. I know Rafi telling me that he had some people over 80 years old and some of their out of the cold programs who were angry that they wouldn't let them open up during the pandemic because they were worried about health and, and, and most of the volunteers are in that age group, bless them and thank God for them. But that's, if, if, if you're all wrapped up, it's really hard to, to start pounding on your MPP's door. Yeah. When I you know you. that they're, mm -hmm. what that they're not, really all that interested unless enough of you start pounding on the door. Yeah, I hear you. Uh, by the way, speaking here on the Radical Reverend Show to Rafi Aaron, a spokesperson at Faith Coalition to Fight Homelessness and coordinator of the Out of the Cold program at St. Luke's United and also Cameron Watts, minister at Forest Grove United and co-chair of Faith in the City. Um, first of all, just thank you and all the volunteers. There's armies of volunteers doing this work. Um, the, the question, of course, arises, um, and the governments count on this, right? So they don't have to do what they're, what, you know, what what they should be doing. And, and of course, you know, as Christians, as people of faith, of any faith, um, 
you have to. I mean, you can't not feed your neighbor. I mean, that would be cruel, especially when you get to know them and you're working in in and out of the cold program or, you know, a, something akin to it. Uh, you get to know folk, you're not going to let them starve. But uh, there's this kind of cruel movement that, you know, just the government say, well, leave this up to the faith communities. I mean, this was this was the, what happened, you know, are there no work or houses, you know, I mean, we're almost, we're almost at that. And uh, so we have an election coming up. It's a provincial election coming up. Uh, and shortly after that, a municipal election coming up. Rafi, what should people be talking to their politicians about? We don't have many minutes left, but we've got to just in the last couple, get into that. What should they be demanding of people who they're going to vote for or not? I think that it has to be social housing, again, the rent geared to income, the cutting down of this 110,000 people on a wait list, which is a life sentence before they can get actual into housing. And many of them are homeless and many of the, those experiencing homeless can go into those uh, housing. I think if it's the provincial government, we've got to speak to them about affordable housing um, but housing and the right type of housing, not um, for the elite or the, you know, the wealthy and, and saying, no, 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 we're building all this housing. Yes, you're building all this housing that won't help those who are dying on our streets. A recent uh, a recent developer responded to this question by saying, well, we're building bachelor apartments, you know, condos. Uh, Cameron, what should, and the question is, what there's two elections coming up, municipal and provincial. What should folk uh, be asking uh, when the person knocks on the door or probably more likely calls you up and says, are you going to vote for me or not? What What is the demand? I'm not going to change anything from what Rafi said. I think before that happens, uh, faith communities need to start talking A to each other and B to other agencies that have no faith-based mandate but are doing really good work so that we form more of a coalition uh, to work together. I've been deeply impressed in the last two years by the work of a, a play, of an agency like Maggie's who, who work with uh, sex workers and have been feeding them and getting them vaccinated and caring for them in the midst of all of this. Um, and I think we should be talking to each other. I think we should be talking to the what started out as a small group of people who are trying to support uh, the people being released from Metro South Detention Center and found out that uh, they were being uh, released, set free in the middle of the night uh, without any clothing or money. So they parked a trailer down the street with coats in them and got a lot of money to help with that. So I, I think, yeah, we need to be asking those questions of our political people, but we also need to start talking to each other more. Thank you both. And thank you, listeners. Uh, you've got your, your orders now. <laughs> Do something. Get busy. Speak <laughs> up. Uh, until next time on The Radical Reverend Show.
With a woman like that It's like chasing a ghost You don't know me You love your sisters And you love the sun Well, I'll get there without you Yeah, I'll be there without you Goodbye, Jane Goodbye, Jane. Goodbye, Jane. How can you laugh? How can you laugh at words like these? Well, all I can say, all I can say is love, not money. Tax app, new smartphone tax filing software. Download today at Google or Apple stores. File your taxes right from your smartphone. Ace Tax app is the new way to file online directly from your smartphone. Save time, energy, and money with Ace Tax app. Attention, CIUT alumni. Hi, this is board member Peter Stamp. 35 years ago, CIUT received its FM license, and we plan on celebrating our 35th anniversary throughout 2022. We're encouraging all CIUT alumni to get involved by joining our alumni group. If you're interested in learning more, visit CIUT.FM and click on Alumni Group. Cheers. Cheers. 